0: Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and
1: publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And today's show is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. So ladies and gentlemen, please be upstanding. Charge your glasses to Aaron Brooks, Kamal Rye and Melissa Stone, our latest patrons among many, many, many patrons out there. So thank you to all of them uh, for supporting this podcast because we simply could not continue doing this without your incredible support. And if you are a patron, you get all sorts of extraordinary stuff. If you're a chart-topper patron, you get access to Deep Dives, our exclusive BXP group on Facebook. You get episodes early, all sorts of extraordinary stuff, access to live shows, and it's all good fun. So thank you to all of you. Excellent yes thank you
0: everyone and this week we have I'm just going to give you a little preview actually we have one of my favorite ever interviews I've got to say Mark I absolutely <laughs> love, love, love life. the interview. Such You're going you are in for a treat. Uh, Caro Ramsey, we're going to be diving into her interview with Mark a little bit later on. Um, but Mark, how are you doing? How's things? How's things in in little old Blighty right now?
1: Uh, uh, they're a bit moist, a bit damp, a bit windy. We were we were we had the hottest. We was hot as mercury uh, a week or so ago, and now it's all getting a bit creaky. But things, you know, pre-production on the film is hotting up, so I've got things happening there. I'm going to have a COVID test because i'm <laughs> going to be visiting the set oh so wow. i've i've uh i've just um so we can get covid tests in the post here so i've got one on the way so i'm going to be taking my covid test oh my soon. goodness that's uh, going to be interesting yeah so i can get on the set i'm getting um I'm getting random calls from John, the director, because you know when you're in pre-production, all the departments—art department, costume—they start asking questions. So you know I'll get calls from him going, "Okay, this character is reading a book. We've put this in the script. Do we really want it to be that book, or should it be a different book, or could it be?" So you start thinking about real nitty-gritty detail. The other thing I've been asked to do is do character bios. for the main actors as well. Ah, so little bits of backstory for the actors. Uh, so hmm. they, they've got something to get their teeth into. And it's it's that thing of writing just enough. You want to give them, you know, maybe half a page, three paragraphs maybe, just to give them something, an angle, an idea, a little taste. You know, you don't want to be too prescriptive. You want them to bring themselves to it as well, and you kind of meet them halfway. Uh, so, yeah, all That's sorts of fun That's so stuff fascinating, isn't it, because we've just been writing character sheets
0: and backstories in characters for one of the courses on the academy haven't haven't we and it's kind of interesting yeah. that something suddenly which... very relevant to me <laughs> absolutely how brilliant is that goodness me yeah that's yeah. fantastic news oh it's, it sounds very very exciting and of course it's going to be very interesting you know that with with covid and and obviously all the restrictions um i know i know there's lots of interesting kind of ways that people are having to film now because of that and you're going to be right in the thick of it aren't you
1: well you know next episode of the podcast hopefully i will either been to the set or i might even be on the set nearby. so (laughs) excellent stay tuned for that but enough of that enough of that banter mr d you, that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's been embarrassing me the last few weeks uh, with my silly achievements, but I've got to tell you, Mister D has been working his tight little socks off <laughs> <laughs> in putting together the Bestseller Academy. He's been working every god given hour to put this thing together, and uh, yeah, we're um we're full up, aren't we? We're absolutely <laughs>
0: filled up. We want to thank every person who applied we're sorry for those that didn't get in it's we we've had such a massive response to the academy we filled up before before the deadline and offer letters are out so if you and it's starting in just under two weeks from now and i couldn't be more excited mark we have the most incredible and i'm telling you incredible group of people everyone from people who have right starting their first book to some people who are like award winning authors that have joined the Academy. Mm. It it's and not just that, just from all around the world. We've got people, Sweden, Netherlands, the UK, France, Canada, Australia, loads of people from the state. It's such a beautiful mix of people. And yeah. it's going to be such a, a wonderful cultural experience as well as a writing experience. So I I'll be telling telling you a lot more obviously about how how things go for listeners that are interested in in joining in the future. But we've had to create a waiting list for future enrollments because we yeah, we were quite overwhelmed with the uh the last minute rush, so we say. So if you're interested in in actually getting on the wait list, the way we're going to do this, to try and be fair, is we've created a priority wait list now. So if you get on the wait list, the quicker you get on it, You'll be offered an invite to the Academy when we open the doors in the future. So I really recommend people getting over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and just get your name on the list. Get your name on the list. There's no commitment. It just
1: gets you on that priority list. But seriously, congratulations. This this is all his brainchild listeners. He's been talking about this for years and we, we've finally finally done it, but you've put so much work in and uh, the site looks amazing. The course is going to be brilliant and it's just going to grow and get better as we go. Yeah, it's, it's. I can't wait to get stuck in. It's going to be so much
0: fun. And, you know, one of the things that's really blowing me away as we've been building these courses, it just shows, you know, for everyone that's listening to this podcast, if you're new to this podcast, it just shows the benefit and the value of really going deep with this stuff. I mean, it really gives you the edge in terms of learning about, you know, the craft of writing. And actually, you know, we'll hear about that on today's interview. It's interesting. It comes up with Caro and she actually very specifically talks about um how she had to learn the craft to become that bestseller. But um, the thing that I'm particularly interested in is this idea of the coaching element, the mentoring element that the two of us are going to be doing. Because most writing courses out there are very much prescribed, like, you know, step by step, this is what you do, follow my way, and you'll, you'll, you know, hit the bestseller charts. Whereas we're doing it slightly differently, is that we're actually going to be coaching people through the process, as well as teaching the craft of it. And I think that's the bit that's going to make all the difference, that combination of those two. And yeah the two of us we're, we're we've already booked our coaching sessions for the next year haven't we Mark we're doing that Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. it's scary thought, it is a scary yeah. thought but you know it's brilliant <laughs> and um yeah. Also just people that have taken the plunge as well. There's some people that were a little bit kind of nervous. They said, Oh, I'm not good enough to be in a writing academy. But you know, I, I really want to encourage people. It's about going outside your comfort zones. That's what makes the difference. And really, if you want to become a best selling author, it's about going outside your comfort zones because it's a whole m- much bigger world in terms of writing and we've learned that from so many people that we've interviewed so yeah good stuff good stuff but um mark we're going to do some good news towards the end of this show because there's lots of good good news stories coming yeah yeah but i'd love to dive into the interview i've got to say i've been so busy lately with the academy i almost didn't get a chance to listen to it this has got to be one of my favorite interviews in 270
1: odd episodes caro ramsey Tell us a bit about her, her background. Kara uh, is uh, Glaswegian author of the critically acclaimed Anderson and Costello series. Uh, the first of which Absolution was shortlisted for the Crime Writer Association's new blood dagger for best debut of the year. And uh, she's just, she's just so much fun. She's got a diploma in forensic medical science. Uh, she's 14 books into her career. Although as you'll hear in the interview, we completely lose count as to how many books she's actually written. She, She's had there's been ups and downs. She's been dropped by a publisher. We talk about uh, hearing voices of characters in heads. We talk about having a proper mind space. But most amazingly, as well, is is her first books were written in very very unusual circumstances. Mm. So this is this is a real roller coaster absolutely. Well listen get yourself a cup of tea and settle
0: down. Or well, not if you're driving obviously. But settle down. I guess you could stop by the lay-by, couldn't you? Settle down and listen to this interview. It's absolutely brilliant. Do not miss this. Let's
1: listen to Mark chatting with Caro Ramsey. Caro, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today?
2: I'm very well, thank you.
1: Good to hear. Now, I've been I've been looking at some of your stuff online and i've seen that where you've got the sideman which is a new paperback uh, which is the i think this is the, the 10th in the anderson and costello series is that correct
2: uh, I'll, I'll take your word for it i <laughs> i, I um... I'm permanently confused by everything. You know, I, I view a good way to think of a writing career when you're 14 books in, which is what I'm sort of working on at the moment. This is just like the Grand National. You just concentrate on the one in front of you and over you go. <laughs> it's complicated because there's a, there's a standalone in there somewhere. Right. And there's also, I'm published by two publishers that are related to each other and they publish them at a different rate. So if it's number 10, it's number 10 and that's fine.
1: Of course, that's the thing, isn't it? As a writer, you, you know, you're often two or three books ahead of the readers, aren't you? So that, uh, that must be difficult because if you go and do talks like this, are you thinking back, oh, my goodness, what did, what did I put in that book? Uh, you know, what do you, is, you can ask me about the plot. Can I remember any of it? Is, is that sort of racing through your mind? Yeah, yeah, the,
2: and there's a delay. There's always a delay when there's always a little old lady at the back who puts <laughs> her hand and she says, she says, now, is so-and-so and so-and-so, are, are those two going to get together? Because I think they would make a lovely couple, and my heart sinks, thinking, well, I've just stabbed one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've just crushed them under a tree. That, that romance is never going to work out. But you can't give that away. And sometimes some people in the audience are further on than other people in the audience. So <laughs> you've got to be really, really tricky at how you answer questions when you're doing events like that. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so you're you're at at least ten, maybe eleven, maybe thirteen books into the Anderson and Costello series. Who who's who's counting now? But
2: who knows? Who knows?
1: There was a there was a a quite a sobering stat the other day that said that you know that someone had done the sum. Someone had looked looked at people who've been published by mainstream publishers. Generally, very 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 few people get beyond three books. They publish three, and then they might never be heard from again. So you're, you're doing pretty well here. What, what would you say is, uh, has helped Anderson and Costello and your writing endure? What, why do you think people keep coming back for more?
2: Um, I don't know, but I there's a thing about between the third book and the fourth book, you either become a commercial property or a slightly non-commercial property. And what happened to me was that Penguin and Random House amalgamated and one of my editors left. Uh, my editor left, so when they left, there was quite a few. There was about six or seven of us were just dropped from that list. So then we were we were sort of out in the wilderness somewhere, and, and I was very lucky that another publisher picked me up. So I'm, I'm very grateful that they did. But when you when I look at the other writers that were also lost to that, some of them were absolutely fantastic writers, and it's a huge shame. But but it does happen. Publishing is a is a very cutthroat industry. And so we're, we're back on board now with the, with the new publisher and they're doing fantastic things and they're doing fantastic things for me and it's as if two publishers, one bought over the other one and then they had a wee baby publisher and this baby <laughs> publisher is doing its own crime imprint so that's why there's a lot of them being republished again maybe only a year or 18 months after they were first published but they've got a nice shiny cover so that's fine. So, so the answer to your question is I think a good characterisation. And the other thing that the, the the Severn House did was that they didn't want me to write anything new. They wanted to keep the Anderson and Costello characters going, and I think that's quite unusual for a publisher to take on something that that was successful at Penguin. I mean, it was very successful. They was, they, there was there was there were uh, Dagger uh, shortlisted and things like that, but but just not mega. And what they want is mega, you know. Right.
1: right. That's interesting. I mean that, that I mean that's the thing like we say you're, you're 10 11 12 books in and it's uh, you've clearly got a really really you know strong following as well. And we've been having we've been having conversations in our in the podcast Facebook group about how we write characters and whether we hear their voices in our heads. Now you've been writing Anderson Costello for some time. How real are they to you? Could you could you sit down right now and write a conversation between the two of them?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I hear their voices in my head in their voices. I don't hear their voices in my head as a, as a single voice the way you would if somebody was reading the book. You know, it's the same voice just saying the words of either person. I actually hear their voices as as I would hear my sister's voice or my brother's voice or my dad's voice. You know, it's a it's a different voice to mine when I hear what they are saying in my ear. And I think I think that's quite an interesting thing. At Edinburgh Book Festival we one year there was a university doing a study on that. You know, do you see your characters, do you hear them? And mm-hmm. when you hear them, you know, if your character's got a Geordie accent, do they speak to you in a Geordie accent in your head? And that that's quite a weird thing to think about. <laughs> you could actually go mad thinking about that.
1: <laughs> it's, it's interesting because the thing I'm writing at the moment, that it's set where I live. I'm in Kent. So they've all got that kind of, you know, slightly estuary, Cockney accent. You know and I do hear that I mean that's kind of my voice anyway but I do hear but it's set in the country and whenever I I think of anything set in the country I go to a West country accent you know a little my lover that sort of thing but this this I can definitely hear their voices and it, it does it does feel that a little bit more real to me now and that, yeah. that, that abbott and, Anderson abbott and Costello how many times am I going to do that in this show Anderson and Costello you know you've been writing them for some time, so they're, they're very vivid for you but what about the villains in your books the psychopaths what are their voices like do, do they keep you up at night?
2: No, no, I, I sleep. I sleep the sleep of the just. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I think it's quite good because you can just write in anybody that you really don't like and murder them, and then you're, like <laughs> sort of half, you're, you're half on the side of the of the baddies in your book anyway. So crime writers get all that badness out doing that. So yeah, they they sleep very well. They they don't they don't bother me. Val, Val and McDermott and I are are, are quite pally, and she. She said that it really helped when there's a writing space and you leave your writing space. And I think that's quite a good tip. You know, I I still work, I'm an osteopath, I've got a big practice, and you can take a lot of you do go through a lot of emotional trauma at the at the job. And when you take your clinic coat off and you you sort of change from one life to another life, it's very good for your mental health. And you're taught that. You're, you're taught that as part of your training. And I think the same thing to protect yourself should apply to writers. Have your rewriting space and then move away from it to do something else, and then go back to it when you want to continue writing. It's not a privilege that a, a lot of us have to have a, a designated office. But even doing things like changing the the top of your if you if you're writing on the kitchen table, have your writing tablecloth on and then take it off. Some people wear a writing jumper and then they take it off. It's a it's a good thing to get you into that mindset of where you are and then leave it.
1: That's absolutely brilliant because it is. It's not just about the place, is it? It's about getting into a certain groove, a certain kind of thought space, isn't it?
2: Absolutely, and just having that wee bit of a wee, wee bit of this headspace around you just to create and, and do. And I think that's why a lot of writers are struggling at the moment because that routine has gone with lockdown and their their working space is turning into all sorts of things. It's a playgroup space, it's a dog exercise space, it's all yeah. sorts of things. So, yeah, I think maybe even more important at the moment.
1: Absolutely. Let's go back because I want, I want to talk about... I, I found a quote from you talking about a, a story you wrote when you were eight years old about the teddy bear's picnic. Now, most children when tasked with writing about the teddy bears picnic would write the story that they know. But you 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 found an interesting take on the story, didn't you?
2: Well, you know, I never realized that that was abnormal until I until my grandmother found the story handwritten <laughs> out. And she found it maybe, what, 20 years ago or something. And I read it and I thought, why did nobody call social services? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the teacher had said, write a wee story about your favourite nursery rhyme or something. And everybody was doing, you know, Jack and Jill and Humpty Dumpty and all that. And I've always thought, and I still do, that the teddy bears picnic is extremely sinister. <laughs> 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 and 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 in my story they all go out the kids and the teddy bears for their picnic and then the teddy bears turn on the children and eat them basically and uh, I think the, the first line of the story was four year old Emily was the last one to die <laughs> <laughs> she she had nearly made it to the river and I don't know why but for some reason in my head if she'd just got across the river she would be okay maybe maybe teddy bears are like triffids they can't go in water or anything like that but, but yeah that was that was a bizarre thing looking back on that in all my writing as a as a child was dark. You know, I've never written, written anything nice in my life.
1: Just no envy. <laughs> poor little four-year-old Emily crawling <laughs> towards the river.
2: Well, she was probably a pain in the bum anyway. <laughs> probably had spent years annoying her teddy bear. <laughs>
1: so that that darkness has always been there in your writing hasn't it
2: it has absolutely and and just how funny how how fate turns but i am now very good friends with one of the the top teddy bear people in (laughs) in britain and she designs these teddy bears and she makes videos up for them and every time she puts them up on facebook i put in a really terrible comment like (laughs) he's only planning world domination you know you can see it in his are freaked
1: out by teddy bears i'm not <laughs> going <laughs> now, there's a bit of a gap in your career from eight years old to when your first novels were written and your first novels were written in very unusual circumstances were they you you'd uh you'd had a considerable trauma hadn't you? physical trauma tell us about that
2: uh, yes, but everything happens for a reason. The the actual trauma itself was very slight. I just tripped up the stairs, and um, since I'd been about eleven or twelve, I, 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 there was a, definitely a problem with my back. Neurologically, there was something wrong, and then went off to university, And did what you do, came back set up my business. Back was always a wee bit of trouble, so I'm an osteopath. Da 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 da. Tripped up the stairs and fractured it. So I, I tripped up the stairs, and the pain in my back went away immediately. And I thought for two minutes, oh, that's a great thing. And I thought, no, that can be quite a serious thing. went home and I was just aware of the numbness just starting in my big toe and working its way up my legs. And and I thought, oh, no, this is something very wrong here. Phoned my GP and she said, we'll get an ambulance straight out. And then she phoned back five minutes later and says, you don't have a hope of an ambulance in the next six weeks. (laughs) is there anybody you know who's got a big car that you could just get in and lie in the back? And, and that's how I went into hospital and I was there for a very long time and uh, I wasn't ill once we get the pain under control I've had to stay very still and if I hadn't started writing about murdering people I probably (laughs) would have murdered somebody in that (laughs) (laughs) one anybody who's been in hospital for a long period of time just knows what it's like, it's the noise it's somebody watching programmes that you won't necessarily want to watch Mm -hmm. and the telly's on full blast all the time even the same programmes repeated and there's a famous story this women across the ward for me always wanted who wants to be a millionaire <laughs> and the question was what's the capital of Australia and she said Sydney <laughs> and I said I don't think so I think it's one of those weird countries I think it's, it's the, cap, the capital's Canberra and she said no it's Sydney and then it went uh uh-uh, uh and Chris Tam said the capital's Canberra and then at half past six that night I swear they repeated the same episode and they asked what's the capital of Australia and she said it'll be Sydney this time. (laughs) (laughs) And and that in my brain, that's the point where I said I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And a friend friend brought in a clipboard and a a notebook and neither of us can remember if I'd asked for it or if he brought it in. And a papermate pen and paper pen you can write upside down and, and lying on your side. Right. And I wrote a quarter of a million words before I was on my feet. I wrote 242,000 words before I was back on my feet. And they became absolution and singing to the dead. And I had no experience of writing at all. It's just that my brain had no work to do, so it decided to go off and do this. And as one door closed, a very nice door opened in front of me, so that was fine.
1: That's incredible. No experience of writing. So since your Teddy Bear Massacre story, you'd not given thought to a career in writing at all, not studied at I, all? Not.
2: I, I had no intention of doing that at all. I, I went to university, I set up my business, I've got a big business, it's very busy, You know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of stuff going on and I had no idea and then that just stopped and just came to a, a halt and my brain just thought, I'll go and do this. And then I, I, when I was kind of back on my feet, I went to a, a writer's group and the, the journalist in charge of the writer's group said you should send that to Jane Gregory. Her quote was, she likes evil bitches like you. She, <laughs> Jane looks after Val McDermott and Anne Cleave and Minette Walters and uh, Mo Hayden and all So I sent it off to her and I don't know what she saw in it. But she we flew to London. I had a meeting and uh, and the next day she signed me. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm now going to be absolutely marvellous and da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and then I had to learn the craft of writing the novel. And those 120,000 words, I think, were rewritten eight times before she, she approached a Penguin and sold it to Penguin. Immediately there was a sort of auction thing going on and it just went and then I was a bit like Napoleon, I just went round Europe, you know, and every day I got a phone call and said, well that's Germany bidding this and that's France bidding that and it was amazing, I was like the Eurovision Song Contest except it wasn't good, you know? <laughs>
1: just imagine <laughs>
2: yeah
1: that's remarkable
2: yeah it, it was truly remarkable and I'm, I'm very happy at the fact that I had absolutely no idea what was going on because if I knew then what I knew now I would have been terrified yeah <laughs> terrified. yeah
1: yeah it's uh that that you're talking about learning the craft and having to rewrite what were the biggest lessons you learned in in those in those early rewrites
2: um, at the dinner where, because everything in the publishing, as you probably know, is, is done over uh, lunch. Yes. The, the Beverly <laughs> Cousins, the lovely girl, uh, Michael Joseph Penguin, she said, you know, the, the, uh, the, the deal is dependent on two things. And I said, uh, you know, for that amount of money, I don't care what, what you, do. you can do what you want. She said, one, we need to change the title. I said absolutely don't have a problem with that and the other thing was they wanted to change the uh, name of the main detective who was called Colin Cahoon, and it was Cahoon and Costello but Cahoon is spelled in a very sort of strange Scottish way and she said nobody will ever be able to pronounce that and I said but it's a perfect she says yes I know end of Nobody will ever be able to pronounce it, change it. And that's how we came up with the name of Anderson. That was a sort of joint decision between me, my agent, and the and the editor. So that was the two things that, that were first sort of taken off the table. Then it was a lot about um, pacing, I think, was important, and those wee ups and downs, and why you think you're saying something that's very uh, relevant you know, at the end, you've got to go through it and just say to yourself, is this relevant to the story? Hmm. And if not, it has to go. You know, it is that thing about killing your darlings. And I've learned that I write a lot. I write very richly to get it into my head and get the setting and everything in my head. Probably about 90% of that goes out in the second draft. But I do that myself now. I don't need to be told to do that. But I do need to write it in just to get it settled in my head.
1: Fantastic. And it's interesting they made you change... The detectives know, because it, ma- it immediately made me think of DL and Pasco. Which, uh, if you ever look at the TV listings, because there was a TV spinoff, you'd think, or oh, the spine of the books, you'd think it's Diesel and Pasco, you know, or however yeah. it's spelled um, But I guess there's always an there's always an outlier that gets away with it. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. That isn't, and that's obviously with the international market in mind. So they're clearly thinking big very early on, weren't they?
2: Oh yeah, they were. They were, they were absolutely, and um, and it was all it was all to do with uh, making the book as palatable as as possible. Um, it, this only works in a, in a scottish audience but there's, there's lots of scottish words that go into a book and they say now we really like that but can you either take it out or explain what it is mm-hmm. and, and and some of this stuff they come back with you know i'm just rolling around laughing if i'm doing an event in a library i do a 10 minute comedy skit on <laughs> how translating the book into hungarian was fine but translating it into English is, is is quite different. <laughs> you know, we, we, we've got a word to dunt. Do you use the word dunt to D-U-N-T?
1: Not down here, no. No.
2: no. And it, and it's a sort of, so every time I, I use that word, it gets scored out and she writes in dent. The editor writes <laughs> in dent. And I say, no, a, a dunt is something that you, you have had that ends up in a dent. It's a nudge. <laughs> But it's a nudge with attitude. You know, like if you're waiting in a queue and the pet, your friend in front isn't moving forward quickly enough, you can give them a wee elbow in the back. That's a dunt. Mm, that's <laughs> but a great. It's, <laughs> it's a very, it? very good word, and there's no English equivalent. So they want it Scottish, they want it flavoured with Scottishisms, but at the same time, it's got to be understandable. And And that was quite a that's quite a a tricky tightrope to walk. And Katrina McPherson, the the Scottish author who who lives in in Los Angeles, she was reading a book set in Scotland and it's full of Americanisms. It's got sidewalks and all that sort of thing. And she just says, it's wrong reading a book set in Scotland and there's a sidewalk. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a shame though, because those words... Those unique words, they're part of the Scottish culture. They're part of, of you know, the English language, which is a, you know, it's a language that mops, that steals from all over the world, you know. Uh, and it's just, it's just, but I guess, I mean, I guess that's when you're talking about mainstream publishing, they want to go wide, which is why it's important that we have small independent publishers that, you know, I guess will publish Scottish literature that, that doesn't get, you know, scored off for the, the international market. It's um, Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. And yeah. and
2: and publish things that don't get diluted.
1: Yes, and,
2: yeah. And also, to my mind, not not. I mean, I, I get away with it a lot more now. Um, but I think it's a wee bit insulting to the reader because you I, you you read books. Uh, set in Spain and, and set in, in Holland and there'll be odd Dutch or Spanish word in there mm. but you get it from the text of the sentence what they're talking about and it just adds a wee bit more flavour to the novel and I think I think the Scots, Scots are like that as well but there's so many of us now that I think we're actually beating that door down You know, yeah. where, but we, we're getting away with a lot more
1: Yeah, no absolutely, I mean when I was a kid I would read novels set in America I would read Mad Magazine and I, I knew jokes about Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew before I knew who the real people actually were you know <laughs> you you look these things up don't you you know it's uh anyway anyway let's 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 go back to your your characters because uh you know if they if they are very much real in your head how much do you let them drive the story because crime novels you know uh there's there's a mystery, there's a riddle to be solved. There's I've always said crime is like storytelling with with the the, the bonnet up. You know you can see all the workings. You know you can, if if something doesn't make sense, then the whole thing can fall apart. So. Crime novels tend to be quite heavily plotted, but if you're having characters drive it, how, how do you work out that balance? Are you more of a plotter or or a pantser?
2: Uh, I'm a, I'm a sort of neither. I know where the story is going to end, and it's just a question of how I get there. You know, like I, I know I, I know the road, but I don't know the exact route we're going to take. Mm-hmm. So I I would answer that question by doing it sort of scene by scene. So. I hate it when I read something and I think that is very out of character for that person to do that. And it, you, they do that a lot in soap operas on the telly. You know, one week they're a serial killer and the next week they're a nun. And you just think, how is that? <laughs> and and obviously after, well, 14 books in my head, things have gone on. Anderson has got wee issues with certain things because he's been traumatised in the past. And, and he has to carry that with him. He can't just leave it behind. So if there's a scene that appears... And as I'm writing it, there's a sort of hesitancy and I feel it, I feel it almost viscerally of them saying, I wouldn't do that. Or more likely, Anderson said, actually, I wouldn't. And Costello says, well, I bloody would, you know. She's more liable to go sort of off piece because she cares less. Or in some ways, she cares more. You know, Anderson's got a wife and kids to look after. Costello can go a wee bit rogue if she wants to. But she would never ever run through a graveyard at midnight in her nightdress. That just would never happen, you know. The only time she'd be doing that was if she was hallucinating or ill or something. So scene by scene, I think, I have this scene, that these are my actors, who is going to do this? So I don't think they influence the plot that much, but they might influence the way the plot re- reveals itself. Would that be a better way of putting it?
1: That's perfect. I love that. That's terrific. I'd like to talk about research as well, because it's something, again, with crime novels. And obviously, you have a medical background. So, you know, things like pathology and stuff, you know, that that might come easier to you than most. But I I, I read a quote uh, from an old interview where you said, where you're talking about research. And I think this is brilliant. You said, ask a defense lawyer about how detectives work and ask detectives about defense counsel, which I think is great because it might not necessarily be accurate, but so much of the storytelling is about perspective and how we see each other, isn't it? Where, how did you, how did you, you know, come around to that way of thinking? Because I think it's superb.
2: Uh, I treat a lot of defence counsel and I treat a lot a lot of police officers <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, uh, and I've also got a diploma in forensic medical science mm. and uh, when we go to these lectures it's very interesting because the, the procurator fiscal who I suppose is the sort of our equivalent of your coroner he will stand up and give his lecture and he'll say well of course I'm in charge of the crime scene you know I'm the senior law officer in Scotland you know all these people basically are under my command. And then the next week, you might get a, a police officer lecturing, and he'll say, I was a senior investigating officer, I'm in charge of the crime scene, <laughs> and da da, da, da da And then a couple of weeks after that, you'll get the scientific advisor, and he'll say, You know, I am in charge of the <laughs> crime scene. Forensically, I'm the one with the clipboard, I see who goes in and out, I'm the one who does this, I'm the one who does that. And it's those sort of internecine, sort of, they're not fighting, but they all have their own wee part of. Of the of propriety, this is my bit, and that's your bit and and it's also very good then if in a novel you want to shift the blame onto someone else and it always seems to go back to be the police's fault because they they are the, the, the biggest organisation so things are more likely to get lost you know whereas the procurator fiscal is quite a small team of people the scientific officers are a small team of people so yeah that is, it's an interesting thing that's so and, and I have friends who go to the police and they have coffee with them and they have these big long discussions on how A crime scene is is worked through and and it all sounds lovely. When you actually talk to the police officer, you know, in in another sort of profession and they're just chatting away to me, they'll say things like, there was only three of us because everybody had the flu, Right. you know it's it's so one you get the, the textbook version of what's yeah. right and the other they're like everybody else they've got cuts and the photocopier's not working and the car's broken down or somebody's pranged it or this there's, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff goes on yeah and it's, it, it'd be lovely if it was a perfect world but then crime writing wouldn't be that exciting if it was a perfect world so, yeah.
1: <laughs> absolutely uh, so we've got The Sideman is out Red Red Snow uh, is, is out or coming very soon what's coming next from you Cara
2: I'm I'm just putting the finishing touches on a book that is called On an Outgoing Tide. And it's an Anderson and Costello. And it's a bit like Last of the Summer Wine Meets the Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are three gentlemen who are now in their 80s. And and I suppose it's I mean it's, I write things and then I think where did that come from? It's this social media thing about you know historic abuse and all that sort of thing. And and did any of this go on? And and what was what was happening? And and I, I had this wee this wee scene of um, there, there's pictures of of my sister when she's eighteen months, two years old. Running about naked on the beach, mm. you know this is like ni- early nineteen sixties, and in those days that was totally acceptable. Mm. Nowadays, if that photograph was was up on your mantelpiece, people would say that's terrible. Yes. But take it in context of of a of a very normal, loving family, you know that, that everything's got to be put in context in the time that's of eighty people who are in their eighties what they've lived through. Yeah, so I'm sort of playing around with that and how much sometimes the media can force an investigation in a direction that really the investigation is heading off in totally the wrong direction. Right. So that's kind of what it's about. That
1: really. sounds...
2: but it's, it's, a, it's got lots of really great old characters in it, you know, but it's, it's, a, it's a, I'm really enjoying writing it.
1: Brilliant. Uh, sounds terrific. Well, we're really looking forward to it. And folks, uh, the Sidemen is out now from Blackthorn Books. As, as as, any number, what are we, 10, 11, 12? We're not sure. We've lost count. But they're all yeah. out there to, to, to read. So enjoy those. Cara Ramsey, thank you so much for speaking to me today and hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, thank you very
2: much. Thank you.
1: You know, there were at least three t-shirt quotes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've got to admit, I was driving my daughter to the dentist um, whilst I was listening to this interview in the car. And I almost had to pull over at one point. I was laughing so hard. My daughter was a little bit (laughs) concerned. (laughs)
1: <laughs> teddy bear's picnic i tell you what when Cairo dropped that line about four-year-old laura um, the last, um, the die. four-year-old emily was emily. the first one to die yeah um, just believable oh, ab- i'm first in line to watch that movie that oh. is just fantastic yeah. but it makes absolute sense isn't it <laughs> when you look at a, when you look at like a classic
0: children's you know kind of story or song from a kind of you know the crime writer's perspective of course the teddy bears picnic is something completely dark and sinister i just love it what a brilliant thing and also so many things so many things to unpack with our interview one
1: of the things i loved was i mean we we have to talk about the story
0: about how she started writing
1: yeah it's just extraordinary so she you know she fractured her spine i mean my god and then wrote a quarter of a million words you know Lying on her back, basically, before right. she got back on her feet. It's just, I mean, talk about, you know, and and she'd not written since that Teddy Bear's picnic story. So, you know, this, this is just, talk about taking adversity and oh, turning into something remarkable. It, I knew, see, I knew you'd you like knew this it. one. I, I know, knew you'd I know, like you this did one. Say, I've, got say, <laughs> I've got to say, I've got to say,
0: anyone listening to this podcast in this moment, whatever year it is, in the future, whenever you discover this, episode. If you're going through challenges in your life, if you've got something which is, you know, you're really struggling with because something's hit you so hard and it could be anything. I mean, you know, you could be in hospital, you could have lost a loved one, you could have got COVID, um, you could have just lost your job. You might be wondering how you're going to make ends meet in the next, you know, couple of weeks. I want you to take inspiration from Caro because... You know, we've heard this again and again on the podcast. I always go back to Brian Cranston who said, you know, fear not. You know, he, he was talking about a bad situation in your life will make a great story later on. But what Caro did is she made a bad story in her life be the the, the whole impetus to her becoming a best selling novelist. I mean, you could even ask the question, had she have not broken her back, would she even be writing today? That is the kind of the weird thing to say, but it's like the gift. In the tragedy or the adversity. So every single one listening to this podcast right now, what adversity are you going through right now? Look for that gift. Look for the opportunity. What is it that you could be doing? You know, something in your life saying this is happening because it's going to open a door to something really important in, in your life moving forward. So I totally honor Caro for sharing that. And it's, it's, she could have just laid in the bed and got miserable. Yeah. I've gone bonkers, yeah. like she said, but she, yeah wrote a quarter of a million words. Mm. Unbelievable.
1: What, a, what an hasn't incredible lady. has that stopped saying? she's gone thing. from strength to strength to strength. I mean, the other thing, you know, talking there about adversity, her editor left and then she was dropped by Penguin Random House, you know, uh, and a lot for a lot of authors, as, as she was saying, you know, there was, uh, we're talking about this survey where, a lot of authors don't get beyond three books. They might get a three book deal and then that's it. And then it's, it's funny. I was I was talking to an author the other day who was, a, I won't say who it was, but they found an old Smith's fresh talent catalog. Mm. And this was from early 2000s. And Smith's fresh talent was the, is the big promotion that launches new talent. And of the dozen or so people in that fresh new talent, only I only recognise two of them as best selling authors that are still going strong. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is hard. I it is hard to keep a career going, particularly if you're with a publisher, because it is it is a business and if you don't, you know if you don't get that fourth book that keeps that momentum going, then you're have to find another way to do things, you know. But, of course, the opportunities are there with self-publishing. Well, or, as Cara did, she jumped ship to another publisher who wanted to keep the Anderson and Costello books going, which is just fantastic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think if, you know, being dropped by a publisher is one of those adversity moments where, mm. you know, that might be the beginning of your little launch into becoming a million-selling indie author. Um, yeah. You know, because, but or you could give up you could just say well obviously and you know i'm not a good writer or it was never meant to be or my my books aren't aren't going to ever be successful but there are so many other factors this is the crazy bit this is the utter craziness of this whole ridiculousness of writing is that your writing is only a only one, one part of the jigsaw puzzle mm. and yet as writers we we always make that center stage like oh it's because my writing's rubbish it's not often mm. It's because of many other factors. Or maybe, yeah, that you had to write that book to become a better writer for your best-selling novel, which is coming next. But it's Mm -hmm. never because your writing's not good enough in itself. So it's interesting. And she also – the other bit that I found really fascinating was the way in which Cairo said that she wrote the book, she wrote those quarter of a million words, and then she had to learn how to write. Like she had to to learn the craft. (laughs) (laughs) Which just shows you, you know, you don't have to – You don't have to learn the craft before you can call yourself an author. It it doesn't. Craft is just part of the lifelong journey that we're all part of. I
1: I would argue she was already learning the craft, just getting those words down. There's so much to be said for just getting the bloody words down and getting it finished and getting to the end. It's funny, just this week I've been, I'm sort of polishing a draft before I send it off to beta readers. And um, I'm thinking back to when I first started this, which was back in March... And, you know, where we are August and I've got a fairly polished first draft, which is in pretty good shape. And I'm just doing little bits of timeline, making sure it all adds up before I send it off. So, you know, it's uh, just finish the damn thing. Get those words down as as Caro did. And and yes, and it's the thing is, it's a constant process. It doesn't stop. I don't, you know, uh, you don't get to a point where you think, well, that's it. I know it all now. <laughs> I am a writer. Uh, I think every writer I know Every writer I know is constantly learning, uh, constantly, you know, trying to f- pick up something new, change the way, evolve as a writer. I mean, you, you said we've got an award winning, a major award nominated author. I can't say which award, but it's a big one on the Academy because this person wants to carry on learning, wants to, you know, because you never stop. It never, ever stops. And that's what I love about it. It's, it's so
0: beautiful. I think the, the interesting thing is if for anyone who's ever been in a writing group in an academy or even on, you know, just on a Facebook group or something like the BXP team, one of the things that you learn very quickly is no matter how much experience you've got, if somebody comes in who's fresh off the boat, so to speak, and never written a book you always have something to learn from them because they have a completely different perspective. I always think about, from a musical perspective, people that have learned, say, music theory, and that you can give them any piece of music and they can play the score for Mm. Harry Potter if you just stick it in front of them. And yet, you know... They're brilliant at doing that, but there's always something new they can learn from someone who has no music theory whatsoever and just comes up with an idea in their head and says, what about this? <laughs> they're like, mm. what keys it in? I don't know. It sounds good. <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I love that. And it's, it's like that in writing as well. We have to embrace the fact we have to, we have to get rid of this whole idea that we are all like, evolving to some higher level, we're all exploring, we're all adventurous. It doesn't matter whether we're starting the journey or we're on our 20th book. We've always, always got something to learn from other writers, which is, you know, well, partly why we do this podcast, isn't it? Because we've done this now nearly four years. And every single interview, we learn something new, at least one thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, we could have stopped it after the first year. Yeah, we got those bestseller flags, bum, bum, bum. But actually, you know, we soon learned that we still had so much further to go. And you're right, we were just picking up new stuff every week. And it's fun. I love learning this stuff. Oh. I love speaking to authors like Cara because I, I learn something every single time. Do you know what I learned this time round, Mark? writing jumpers
0: yeah right now we need to explain <laughs> for our friends in north america a jumper is a, a over it's a sweater because people think of jumpers and they think kangaroos and they get very confused but um <laughs> I, I i like the idea it's a bit like the idea of you know if you've worked in an office all your life and you're now working from home you know, go to work in a in a suit or a shirt and tie or or something different than you might just wear, you know, get out your pajamas. And that kind of idea is something I've never heard of for writing because writing, you don't really have an outfit as such, do you? When you, when you show up, but to have a special piece of clothing that is a physical representation of like, I am now going to write. It's a Mm. very brilliant way of getting your mind focused on what you're about to do rather than just being part of your day.
1: Yes, yeah. It's uh I mean writers we have a lot of little rituals and it can um it can be counterproductive sometimes, you know. If, if like any kind of ritual, you kind of think, oh God, if I don't do this, then this won't work. If you're kind of the, if that if sort of, that's sort of superstitious mind space. But I think I think anything that helps you get into that space, like she said, you know, if if you haven't got an office to write in, have your writing tablecloth. You know, have have, and um, we we spoke to Liz Fennick about this a long time ago about how you know she she cleared the space in the uh, on the kitchen table. When I used to write in the office at work, I'd put a little post it note on my headphones saying "am writing, do not disturb." You know, so like yeah. people, yeah. people know you're in the space and know not to pop that bubble. That's the important thing. Absolutely. And one other thing that Kara said that
0: was brilliant. And again, for people that maybe aren't the quintessential British listeners that we have. Last of the Summer Wine meets Reservoir Dogs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> if, you have, if you don't
0: know what Last of the Summer Wine is, you have to go onto YouTube, pause the podcast right now, give you permission, pause the podcast, go onto YouTube and, and watch a clip from Last of the Summer Wine and just imagine that with Reservoir Dogs and you'll understand just how brilliant that is combo potentially could be but save the cat fans will know a bit about this that kind of idea of taking the the mashups we did it for or we've done it for Back Reality, haven't we freaky Friday meets back to the future um such a useful way of just giving people that quick picture as a picture really, isn't
1: it you, you know i did a i did a play with bill owen from last of the summer wine when i was about 20 did years you? old yeah yeah at unity theater how in brilliant. Camden? Uh, it was fantastic. He was, he was great. He was, uh, really, really switched on. It was so different because last of summer wine is this lovely, cozy Yorkshire comedy. Um, and it was so different. I'd seen him on TV, but it was, it was kind of the first time I worked with an actor at that kind of level. And it, you really have to run to keep up. <laughs> well, I can imagine. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> absolutely. It's brilliant. Um, you also said, I think one of my favorite ones, actually, Mark, was your your book, End of Magic, the best. It wasn't a mashup, but it was End of Thrones without the boobs. <laughs> Game, of Thrones, Game of Thrones, sorry. Game of Thrones Game of without, without the boobs. Without the boobs. Yeah, someone said that, yeah. I yeah, love yeah, that. Yeah.
1: So that's something- <laughs> I didn't come up with that. That was a review. That was an Amazon review.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, that's the thing. You've got to be looking for that. One of the things that we've been working on um, as a course, actually, in the Academy was this idea of, of something we're calling a book hook. Which is the idea mm. of how you actually can summarize your entire book in, in one sentence, really in my few words. And it's fascinating when you really start to, to go down to that. Cause we, we have had a lot of authors on the podcast and occasionally authors really struggle, even bestselling authors really struggle to, to really get across what their book is about in as fewer words as possible. And so something we're encouraging every author to kind of practice and, and, and do as much of as they can because when you get the opportunity you don't want to spend you know 20 minutes telling someone the entire
1: line that could be summed up in one paragraph right sell the sizzle people sell the sizzle absolutely shall we Shall we have some good news? I think we should. Absolutely, let's do it. Right. Well, we uh, we've been. This is our BXP team, the wonderful pa- patrons who support us, and they got this lovely exclusive Facebook group, and we love to do a little roundup of good news. And uh, there's some great stuff here. So, first one from Rachel Howes. Uh, she says, "This may not seem like massive news, but it is for me. I've started writing again, despite the physical and mental barriers. It felt." good to get back to the keyboard tapping out another dark turn writing makes me happy and when i don't write because of the disability i'm learning to live with it can feel a bit sucky it's also why i've been rather quiet on the interacting front but i'm back for now well welcome back rachel and good to i tell you what rachel would get on with caro like a house on fire because... Oh, <laughs> I, I, well i was
0: just thinking i was just thinking how important you know that that message was that caro said about mm. how to you know, the importance of the mental health aspect of writing and switching these yeah. roles that we do. And we're really just starting to uncover that, aren't we, on the podcast? We, we've done a few mental health episodes, but it's really, really changing my perspective on, on the value of writing. It's You're not just doing this, folks, to write a book. You're doing it for many, many, many other reasons. And Rachel's example is just a, a really really important one you know it's breaking through those physical and mental barriers so well yeah. done Rachel and thank you for sharing that with us as well um, another milestone is Mark could hit a couple of writing milestones this week 250 consecutive days wow. of writing that's incredible and yeah. 150,000 words <laughs> We talked about if you're not part of the BXP 2020 challenge, the 200 words a day challenge, you want to get onto this because what we've what we've designed within that free program is for people to learn about the idea of creating this. Sequence of writing day to day, this this thing that you're you're this chain of of writing, which actually creates the habit of writing for life, and Mark's pr- living proof of that two hundred and fifty consecutive days, that is phenomenal. There's not many people in the world at any level that have probably achieved that over the last two hundred and fifty days. So mm. well done, Mark, absolutely brilliant, and
1: um, we look forward to seeing you carry that on within the academy as well. I believe mm. Craig Anderson got in touch. He says I got to be a judge in a flash fiction contest that i participated in several years ago and is the reason i wrote my first novella it was so much fun seeing the old familiar faces and the stories were fantastic now craig was the first person to send us a book that he he was the first author as far as we're aware that had finished a book because of the bestseller experiment in its first year and craig was you know entering Flash Fiction Contest, and now he's one of the judges. It's just amazing. So that's great. So Thanks for fantastic.
0: that. It's superb. Yeah, congratulations. And Jeff said, Jeff White said his novella, The Swordsman's Intent, came out and did really well. Nice. Despite it being a soft launch to a newsletter to subscribers and social media followers, it has hit high positions in the free charts of both sides of the Atlantic, particularly in historical fantasy in the UK and military fantasy in the US. So again, another example of how a writer is actually putting a book out to a limited group but mm. still having a you know great success on Amazon and charts as well so well done jeff for that and again showing people that you, you you know it's not necessarily all about that big launch day where you're putting it out into the world and trying to get as many people to buy it on day 1 this is about working hard to build up your own private following you know your yeah. private fan base and 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 making sure that you You deliver
1: things to them on on a regular basis. Find your tribe. Find your tribe. Andy Chapman got in touch. He said, this isn't exactly news. But last night, I finished the first round of edits on a screenplay. And I'm happy to report that it's the best movie ever written. See you at the Oscars. I love that phase. I love that phase when you finish a draft and anything is possible. And you've, you're doing the BAFTA acceptance speech in your head. That's great. I love um, it. No, I, Andy's my kind of man though. You see, <laughs> this is this is what, this is the world I love, live in.
0: Everything that you do, everything that you do, if you go into it believing that it could be the best thing ever, then there's a chance it could be. And I, I, love, I love Andy's kind of focus on that. And I wish you all the best. And hey, you know, when... As some, as Jackie actually responded to him, "Hope you remember us, little people, mm-hmm. uh, when you're on the red carpet." You see, who knows where this could be going? Mark, we could get invited to the Oscars one day. Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Have to sneak in around the back door, possibly. <laughs> but uh, excellent stuff. And there's there's a couple of other good bits of news. We've got uh, Elizabeth Hurley got myself a bestseller tag, and in an a relevant category, time travel science fiction kindle yes how, about, how brilliant is that
1: her book is the quantum curators and the fabergé egg and she writes under the name eva saint john uh so look for her as eva saint john the quantum curators and the fabergé egg and these are such good fun it's interesting actually she's get, she's getting all these reviews that compare her to ben aronovich and the Rivers of London books. So uh, maybe we'll have to get on the show again because Liz has been on the show once already and she can swear at us or something.
0: Yeah, she (laughs) she could maybe kind of get us to pull our fingers out a little bit more and uh, get on with what we're meant to be doing. That's brilliant. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. And a quick note as well about Robin, who's been part of a Facebook group, um, a 79-year-old woman. We mentioned this before, didn't we? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And uh, again, people, uh, I mean, just – just worth, worth getting involved. If you're finding right now that you're going through a bit of a bit of a challenge mentally, through a slump, get involved in some com- campaign. Get behind something. Help somebody who's struggling right now. Because it really helps, helps to lift. They've said that they've um, they've put together an anthology to raise some funds to help save this lady's house. Mm. And in the past two weeks, 60 writers have rallied around and written stories for the anthology. I mean, that's crazy in, in two weeks it's Incredible, and more and more people are jumping on board with promotion social media covers and general organizing the this whole project is a wonderful testament to what a powerhouse the writing community can be and she says never doubt that what writers are capable of we might be quiet but we can still
1: conquer the world <laughs> i love that There, are funny enough this is quite on theme with the book i'm writing at the moment which is it might not seem like it, but there are good people in the world. You know, if you spend your eyes glued to the news, you might not think that, but there, there are, there are people out there. There are plenty of them. So, have faith, folks. And last of all, and by no means least, we had a, a note from Jackie Kirkham. Uh, Jackie says today. I hit 73,000 words, which was the annual target for the BXP 2020 200 words a day thing, she calls it. (laughs) Now she's at uh, 73,003 words exactly. It'll be nice at the end of the year to have something to work with. Uh, I hate the getting it down on paper in the first place, but love the editing rewriting process. Remind me, I said this when I'm moaning next year about editing (laughs) and rewriting. So yeah, we will, Jackie. Oh, that's
0: brilliant. Well done, Jackie. That's brilliant. That magic 73,000. Some words, folks, that is 200 words a day over a whole year. Mm. But what we're finding is people are getting it done in much, 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 much shorter time scales three months, sometimes yeah. six months. And a lot of people I think will be hearing, can't wait till November, December to hear about all the people that have been, you know, pacing themselves with that 200 words a day. Yeah, um, We are closing, Mark, we're closing in on nearly 10 million words written. We'll announce that as soon as it happens. Brilliant. Isn't that amazing? Nice. And well done to Jackie for doing that. I find it interesting though, Jackie, because I think most people, I don't know, we should love to get a poll on this, but most people I think are the reverse, aren't they? Don't they love the writing bit, but then really, really could... Don't look forward to
1: the editing. Where, where do you stand with that, Mark? Are you, do you like both, or I like both. There's a different dynamic. There's because certainly this this new thing I'm working on, I've been pantsing it and it's been really good fun. But I'm quite enjoying the editing because it was a fairly clean first draft. There's nothing big structurally to do. So I'm I've I, it's a different it's a different vibe, you know, because you have that thing where you've got something that you can form into a shape, and uh, I I like that. I mean, I'm always. I'm always in the, I love having written camp. You know, I love having something to play with. You know, starting a project is always a bit daunting. But yeah, no, there's an excitement to writing a first draft. And then there's the problem solving of the edit, which I I really, really like. I love getting my head around that stuff. Excellent stuff. Excellent.
0: So if, if you are struggling with your edits, remember that there is a different way to approach it. I always remember my allotment friend, he was an old ninety-year-old chap. As I was struggling with the weeds in my allotment, every time I went back there, there were new weeds. I was like, "Oh!" And he just said, "Mark, make peace with the weeds. Make peace <laughs> with the weeds." And it was brilliant. And I thought, "Yeah, there's, it, it's like you've got to you've got to look at the challenges of an, of the editing process as as a, a problem solving rather mm. than." Or Or challenges rather than problems, because if you look at them as problems, then it really sucks the the life out of you, you know it's like mm-hmm. oh I've got all this all these things I've got to try and fix it's not it's it's fun, think of it as a puzzle that you happen to do, and um, it's like the way that kids you see I always I'm always curious about this. if you look at the world we live in now, and i I have three beautiful children, and they do love a bit of computer gaming mm-hmm. and I think to myself it's really weird because I've got tons of things that need fixing in the house, tons of problems like this needs doing that. And yet they, they, they're not interested. They're not really interested in diving in and helping me fix stuff. But man, if there's a problem on Mario, (laughs) they're in like Flynn. They're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to dedicate 16 hours a day trying to level up. And, And, and it's just a different way of looking at it. Right. Make it fun. Gamify it. That's a whole new word that we're hearing on the internet. And, um, that's something we're doing in the Academy, actually. We're, we're gamifying the process of writing a book, which makes it enjoyable all the way through. So, yeah, we'll talk a bit more about that, I think, in the future because it is a whole new world of of ideas that we've got for bestsellers. So, Anyway, Mark, it's been an absolutely fantastic, absolutely brilliant interview this week. I'm really looking forward to hearing how your movie goes. Good luck if you're off out into the world, into that uh, film studio north mm-hmm. of London, is it?
1: Uh, I, I probably should say for fear of being somewhere, mobbed by fans. Somewhere in,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Can you imagine the queues of people at the gate yeah, trying yeah. to get into to sign back to reality? It'd be quite ridiculous. It'd be like a Comic-Con that's gone outside oh, on know, tour. I know, I know. But have, a, have an amazing time. And if you can, I, you know, it'd be fun. Are you thinking of documenting some of your adventures on set with a little bit of a voice memo so that we can maybe play some live we can maybe do a compilation in the future.
1: Well, now you've put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> we can always edit it out, of course. I mean, absolutely. No, I just think that'd be fun. I was listening
0: back to your treat in the Alps uh, uh, like oh, a few yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And
1: that, that was fun. fun
0: having that kind of like travelogue kind of diary. But um, I think that'd be quite interesting if you get a chance, obviously, because you know you're just going to be sitting around twiddling your thumbs. Oh, me? yeah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> absolutely. No
0: rewrites or anything at the last minute.
1: <laughs> Well, we'll see. We'll see. I'll keep you posted.
0: <laughs> Excellent stuff. Brilliant. So, listen, everyone, have an amazing couple of right weeks. We'll be back next Monday with a rerun, and we'll be back in two weeks with another brand new spanking episode of the Bestseller Experiment. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. We hope that we're inspiring you. If we are inspiring you, please, please support the podcast. Go to Bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. And if you want to take things just a little bit, Forward. If you want to level up like my kids on Mario, then think about getting on the wait list for the Bestseller Academy. And to do that, you need to go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com.
1: Okay, come and see us on social media as well. We're Facebook Bestseller Experiment, Twitter, and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Come and say hi and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and other podcatchers wherever you can find us. And thanks to Dave and JD, our editors, as always.
0: And whatever's going on in your life, folks, remember. Keep writing. It's goodbye from Mark 1 and a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye! Bye.
1: To read Back to Reality, the best selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two Marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality.
0: And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.